Hey everyone, welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. We're doing a series of special interviews this week from Porkfest in New Hampshire. This is a project of the Free State Project and it's a gathering of libertarians and constitutional conservatives, Republicans, uh, we even had some uh, converted progressives here who are looking for liberty and we're hanging out in this beautiful place and these conversations are gonna be awesome, check it out. Tom, how's it going? Going great. So we were walking over, and uh, well, first let me ask you, when did you get here at Forkfest? Last night. This is the first official thing I've done. And how many have you done before? Just last year. I came because there was actually an event that hadn't been canceled, so I thought I ought to support that. Yeah. I mean, it's the one thing that I will say for Porkfest is I don't think they ever hesitated last year about doing the event. Yeah. There wasn't really a debate about it. They're like, well, of course we're going to do it. We're going to be outside. It's, we're going to be with our friends. It's going to be okay. And it was. It was fine, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So on, on the way over, we were talking about a speech you're giving, I think, tomorrow, right? Yeah. And you're, you're thinking about going without a net. You're, you're thinking about winging it. Yeah. Um, when, did you, when did you learn how to public speak? Like, did, did you have to embarrass yourself before you learned how to do it? Well, in a way, it's like how I learned how to type. I, my typing is very fast, but it's actually just very fast hunt and peck. I have no idea what the proper way to type is, and if you try to teach it to me, I'd probably just walk out of the room indignant. I, I like my stupid way that I learned my own way. So public speaking, I didn't take a class in it or anything like that, but I did a lot of, of uh, acting. I did a lot of stage work when I was younger, and that got me comfortable in front of an audience. And that's, I think that's half the battle with public speaking, is not to be nervous. So once you get over that, it's like you're just having a conversation with a friend. So tomorrow, you're right, I am thinking about, I, mean, I could write out a whole thing with a lot of notes, but I'm thinking about, look, I've been around here like forever, right? I, I started off as the youngest guy at these things, and now I'm not quite the oldest guy, thank you, Gene Epstein, but <laughs> I am nevertheless, uh, you know, a lot older than I was. I feel like I've done this a lot enough that I should be able to just give a presentation and see where it goes. By the way, I feel like we should take as many gratuitous shots at Gene as possible during this conversation. That's my general rule of life. Yeah. Well, that's like, um, I, I think those two steps are, are everything. And the first is, like, I, I did it sort of like jumping into an ice bath of water. I knew that I was going to suck, but I, I hated the fact that I was so shy and yeah. I got so nervous in front of a crowd. So I just started doing it until I got over the nervousness and then the trick is to actually know something we're saying. Right, right, right. Well, in a way, it's like writing. How do you become a better writer? You become a better writer by writing a lot and by reading good writers. So how do you become a better speaker? By speaking a lot and watching people who give good talks and saying, what made that talk good? Why yeah. was that successful? So with, with public speaking, there are some platitudes that are out there about what you ought to do and how you ought to do it. Like you're supposed to make eye contact with the audience. I never do that. I, I would find that incredibly distracting. I kind of generically look out there, but if I try to make eye contact, what if somebody's picking his nose or, or, or on his phone? Or something? I would, that would distract me, so I don't do that. Well, here there might actually be nude people. and I, that would, <laughs> <That's> right, <yeah. laughs> Or, I awkward. mean, heaven knows what people are up to in a Porkfest <laughs> audience, so I'd rather not know. I just look out generically. <laughs> but the other, the other piece of advice they often give you is to start with a joke. And I... I wouldn't say that all advice you get in your life you should do the opposite, but in this case, do the opposite. And this is a case of do as I say, not as I do. Sometimes I do start with a joke. Yeah. But the reason I think it's bad 
until you get to at least the intermediate stage of public speaking, is what if your joke bombs? Then your confidence is thrown, and then the audience starts to pity you. That is not where you want to be vis-a-vis -vis an audience. You do not want pity. And one of the things that I think can help build your confidence is just the realization of if you are in an audience, you're not rooting for the speaker to fail. You're not rooting for the speaker to be humiliated. You want to have a good time. You want to learn something, have a few laughs. And so you realize everybody's on your side. It's like if you're in a professional, you know, you're a professional musician in a popular band. They'll love you. You know, you can't do no wrong. You tell even a semi-good joke, everybody laughs. You know, so you realize no one wants you to fail. They're all like friends of yours out there. And it's this kind of, this mentality shift that eventually you go through that allows you to relax. And that's one of the beauties of being at Porkfest is that this is family. So you can, right. you, you can, you can hit a crappy single and still get applause. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and even if you lose your place or something, I've actually been at concerts where the singer admits, oh, I forgot the words. And we just laugh at that. Isn't that funny? Isn't that awesome? And then that's a memory for you. I was there when John Anderson forgot the words to Owner of a Lonely Heart. And that becomes the coolest thing ever. So even that he couldn't do. He could do no wrong. So this this is actually an interesting segue into into what you do for a living because, um, from my perspective, I, I think of you more as a communicator than an economist, and the fact that you can do both puts you in a um, unlike Gene Epstein, perhaps, who who is a fantastic economist. <laughs> I don't even know that about you. I just made that up, but um, but like. The, 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 the set, the Venn diagram of economists who understand the, how the world works in a proper way and people that can explain that economics in plain English, that, that crossover, it's a pretty small group of people. Yeah, and I wish it were bigger because we really could use a lot of persuasive, skilled communicators in our movement because we often, clearly we have, we have the nerd angle down. Like, we've got that. We have a lot, we have a lot of nerds. Gene. We have, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> but, but I mean, partly, I can see reasons why nerds would be drawn to a movement like this. Because we are committed to ideas. We're not just committed to spreading the graft around, you know, like the, the, the two big political parties. We really are committed to ideas. And sometimes we're committed to thinking about how an alternative world would work. And so nerds like to think about that. That's why nerds like science fiction. They like to think of alternatives, and so they like puzzle solving. And so I get that. But we also need to communicate to the general public, so it is helpful to be able to do both. So, yeah, I, I think of myself as kind of building on what I used to do in high school, which is I used to be a tutor, I, and primarily a math tutor. And I was the guy that the, the coach would send the athletes who were at risk of being thrown off the team or, or you know, missing games because of their grades. And he would, he would always think, well, Old Woods will, will get them. They, they didn't call me Old Woods in those days, I'll be honest. But they, but they would say, Woods will probably be able to help this person. And the way I helped them was just by thinking, I remember the frustrations I had when I was learning this math. I wish that if they had just explained it to me this way, I would have gotten it. Why didn't they just explain it to me this way? So that was how I would explain it to them. And they would say, if my teacher had just explained it to me this way. So I realized, wait a minute, I'm good at figuring out the way they, they should have explained it in the first place. And so then that's just kind of been, well, when I was learning Austrian economics, 
I really would have understood the business cycle a lot better if they had just explained it this way. So that just became my thing. And then, now this is a little bit unrelated, but as long as we're on the topic, one of my fondest memories as a tutor was I had a very troubled young girl come to me who it was, you know, her grades were in the toilet and she, you know, she just, I don't know what was going on in her life, but she seemed very unhappy. And I would try to talk to her. And as I was talking to her, she had a, she had a pin and she would be like carving things into her back of her hand and her arm. And, and I thought, I don't know how to reach this person at all. I, I don't know what to do. So I just kept explaining things the best I could. And I didn't know if I was making any progress. And then at some school function, her parents figured out who I was and said, you're so-and-so's tutor. And I, yeah. And they said, she speaks so highly of you. And her attitude and her grades have turned around immensely. And we really attribute that in large part to what you've done. And I didn't think I was accomplishing anything. And that story, when, when I had to fill out my essay, my college application essay about some, something I had done that mattered in the world, I told that story. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's such a, a, an important skill to, to communicate, I, particularly complex ideas and, and try to connect with people. And I, I'd imagine it was a seller's market if you were correcting for the inability of, of professors yeah. to actually teach. I, yeah. I'm shocked at how many academics who talk to live people every day for a living can't explain ideas. Well, also, I, I know from my podcast, and maybe you have the same experience, sometimes I bring an expert on, and if I bring Peter Schiff on, he's great because he knows he can come up with brilliant analogies at the drop of a hat. You know, he'll talk about the, the stress te tests they give to banks, and he'll say, yeah, it's like they're running a bunch of hamsters over the Brooklyn Bridge. These aren't stress tests. You know, and so immediately people, people understand, ah, the stress tests aren't really putting them under much stress, so they're not really a good test. So they get that right away. But I have a lot of people who come on, and I say, no, listen, I really need you to dumb this down, okay, because you're dealing with stuff at such a high level. I want the average person to really get this. And they say, okay. And then they come on, and they're talking in impenetrable jargon from date from moment one. Yeah. I said, no, 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 I still need you to bring it down two more notches. And by the end of the episode, I'm just throwing my arms up in the air. like, I, And I feel like saying to the audience, look, I tried, man. You know, yeah. I did everything I could. <laughs> it didn't work. You just translate afterwards. What afterwards, really what they trying to say was. Yeah. And then I get people emailing me saying, why did you have that guest on? Why didn't you just explain it? <laughs> you know, this it's one of the mysteries of, of why... Austrian economics, I mean, we know all the structural reasons that universities, why Austrian economics doesn't get taught more often, but one of the fundamental differences between Austrian analysis and, and mainstream mechanical economics is that, that we tell stories and we use metaphors. And, and my friend Deirdre McCloskey insists that that's what good economics is. It's, it's good storytelling, it's good metaphors, because ultimately these rules are common sense. Like if you, if you think about the world in a certain way that say your mom did, you're, you're probably halfway to understanding basic economics. Right, right, right. And, and you mentioned McCloskey. I've had her on, it was a long time ago, but one of the things, now there's that uh, trilogy, the, the bourgeois virtues yeah. trilogy, but I think among her contributions, what I like the most is uh, the, the, her response to this common argument against us that all we think about is dollars and cents. Yeah. And, if, and we say, look, this society is richer than that society. 
And some people say, but that's not all that matters. You know, m money is not all that. Why do you libertarians think money is all that matters? And she translates that into what that really means for human life. You know, that that if if people earn 30-fold more than they used to, this means that their lives have more value, that they that you can have a book club at your house, something as simple as that. You can join a bird-watching society. You have enough leisure time even to be able to conceive of these things. This isn't materialism. This is that you now have the opportunity to live a life that's worth living, that is deeply meaningful. It isn't just that you're buying a lot of uh, Pepsi now, more than you did before, you know, or, or you're, you're wearing more gold watches than you did before, but you're able to do the things that make your life human. And she explains this so beautifully and persuasively and, and fills a gap in, in, our, in our, our knowledge. Yeah, and this is something we struggled to talk about um, in a persuasive way when COVID hit. And we immediately lurched into lockdowns. And I know I know you have obsessed about this, and, and I, I sort of did too. And, yeah. and uh, what I immediately started thinking about was, was Bastiat talking about the seen and the unseen. Um, even before I understood anything about the threat or anything else, and, and what we struggled to explain to people that it wasn't lives versus money, it was lives versus lives, because the resources that you earn are a key part of how you keep yourself alive and, and whether or not you have access to healthcare and, and all the things that we know that make people thrive. But our side, broadly speaking, didn't really, we weren't able to make that emotional argument that, that doing what you're doing is going to hurt people. Yeah, and of course there are direct and obvious ways it'll hurt people. There are people, as we know, who didn't get treatments that they should have had. And in the UK, they had a really bad problem of missed cancer screenings and tens of thousands of people are going to have considerably shortened lives because of that. But some of the uh, examples are more subtle than that. I mean, uh, if somebody worked his whole life to build a, a business that caters to making children happy on their birthdays by having them go outside and ride horses. And everybody's too hysterical even to go outside and ride horses anymore. And you can't hang on long enough to keep that business going. That gave your life meaning. I mean, yeah, I know it. that seems stupid to people who run think tanks and who think that uh, it, you should be perfectly happy to stay locked in your house and not do anything. But to normal people, that is a deep loss. That is a kind of, there's a kind of death that happens there when the things that give you meaning are taken away indefinitely. And not only that, but so casually and cavalierly. You know, it would be one thing to say, all right, it's, it's a couple of weeks to flatten the curve, and we, you know, that's a big sacrifice, and, but we're going to get through this. But then after a while, it became, yeah, you know what, three more months, and we'll get back to you. It wasn't even, no, especially in Europe. Yeah, it's going to be three more months, and then after that, maybe a couple months after that, you know, we'll get back to you when it's okay to... And, it astonishes me to this day that so many people consented to this. Yeah, I guess that's the the only thing worth thinking about in the world is one virus. And then to find out after all these months to look at the numbers and realize that places that did that don't seem to have done any better than places that didn't. So so not only did I make these sacrifices, but it was basically all for nothing. Yeah, that's, that's pretty rough. And it's hard for people to admit that to themselves now. Now, are you the one that you, um, I shared something that you shared that, that was basically a, a graphic game where you yeah, could that was ex me. explain what that was, because okay. it was the coolest thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came out a little on the late side, unfortunately, but there are people on Twitter who, like Ian Miller, who came up with some really great charts. 
So, for example, you would have all the Midwestern states, but they wouldn't label which was which, and they would show, you know, the, the cases, the deaths, the hospitalizations coming down. And they would ask, uh, okay, one of these is Iowa. Iowa opened completely on February 1st. Um, can you pick out just based on the lines? Because Iowa, of course, should be the worst one of all, right? Because Iowa opened up. It should be easy to pick. If, if what we've been to, if Dr. Fauci is right, Iowa should stick out like a sore thumb. So go ahead, pick out Iowa. And of course you can't because all the lines look the same. Or, um, you know, which one of these places had a, a, a mask mandate that people really obeyed and which one didn't? It should be really obvious, right? They're right next to each other, so the, the, the populations are interchangeable. Which one is it? You can't tell. Uh, which one of these places closed indoor dining? And, and these are places that are right next to each other, so the demographics are the same. Which one is it? And you can't tell from, from the, the line. So I decided, what if we had a little quiz? Let's take a quiz, right? And so I, I developed the COVID charts quiz. So it's COVID charts with an S quiz.com. Now, don't go there now because then you won't hear our wonderful conversation. But, but just go to it later, covidchartsquiz.com. It's designed to be a quiz you fail. I, I want people to get a zero on this thing because you realize, well, wait a minute. If this were, if, if it really were as simple as we've been told that, you know, you behave yourself and the numbers go down, but if you're terrible and you go get your hair cut, society collapses, then this should be easy. You should be able to tell which state was which and where, and you cannot. And it's question after question, and it's just relentless. And now, you know, the, the best they can come up with is like, you know, some kind of, they're trying to nuance their way into, well, there's a little bit of nuance between California and Florida. Look, 18 months ago at the beginning of this thing, if you had said, what do you think the charts are going to look like between California and Florida? They would not have said, well, we're going to need to look at a lot of nuance. When They would have said, no, Florida will be up here and California will be down here. They would have said that. And then I'll probably mention this tomorrow, but I'll, I'll never forget there was a guy on Twitter, just some random dude on Twitter who said, you know, I'm looking at Florida, who everybody's praising, and their, their results look very average to me. And I thought, when Florida opened up, I guarantee you, nobody was saying, if Florida opens up, their results are going to be very average, I warn you. No, 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 it was, there's going to be piles of corpses everywhere. Nobody was warning us that we'd be very average. Now, you know, age-adjusted, Florida's doing really well, because we all know it's a lot of old people in Florida. And... And in fact, it's it's been doing great, and so now they don't really know what to do. And 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 I I will give Michael Osterholm credit. I dug on it. I cannot track it down, but somewhere in somebody's Twitter, he said. Uh, now this was a guy who he was uh, by one of Biden's advisors on COVID, and then before that he had been a real uh, panic uh, monger. Uh, Osterholm has actually had the honesty to admit, look. There is no reason that I can understand why Iowa should be doing so well and Michigan so badly. And anybody who claims that he has an easy answer to that question is a liar. I mean, he actually had the decent, and that's all I've been asking for all this time. Just admit that there's something going on here that you guys don't fully understand. Just admit that. What is so hard about saying that? And it's like they all have the illusion of control. They all have to believe that they can control this thing if they can just get us to do X, Y, or Z. And yet even Osterholm says, I... I don't understand what's happening here. Andy Slavitt, that creep, uh, creep times 100, was on uh, MSNBC. And they actually even asked him, believe it or not, there was one tough question 
one time asked on MSNBC. I think it was like March 23rd, 2021. You know, mark that on your calendar forever. One tough question asked on MSNBC. They said, why do you think Florida and California are basically, because Florida, the deaths per million, Florida's at like 1750, California's at about 1600. But when you adjust for the fact that Florida has the fifth oldest population, California has only the 44th oldest, you adjust for that, it's identical. How do you account for this, Andy Slavitt? And his answer was, well, there are some things about this virus that uh, we just don't fully are beyond our ability to understand. So he admitted it. And he said, but what we do know works is social distancing and whatever. We, we know that works. Even though he just admitted, we don't really know why people who are, I mean, DeSantis at this point is thumbing his nose at Fauci. He, he makes jokes about Fauci. He, he dismisses Fauci. What is going on here? So that quiz, that is my revenge on all these people. Go ahead, take the quiz. You're going to get a zero. So as, as a libertarian, I always look at these sorts of things. Like I, I view lockdowns and this this horrible episode over the last year and a half as, as one of the most tragic public policy mistakes in my lifetime. And there's, unfortunately, there's others that could compete with it. Is it, but when I look at these things, I, I think about, I think about Hayek and I think about James Buchanan. I think about, is this, a, a knowledge problem? Is it a fatal conceit from a sort of a Hayek point of view? Or is it about power as as I think the public choice model would tell us that these 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 are just bureaucrats accumulating power and resources? Um, were they dumb or were they sinister? It's the old classic libertarian choice, isn't it? Right. I think it's a false choice because it, it could indeed be both. I think some of them were I, I think some of them had hubris, or some of them thought they knew more than they did. Uh, but others, I, I don't see how we say anything other than sinister. Like what's happening in Canada, the lockdown, there are parts of Canada where COVID has basically disappeared. And these people can't even go to a playground. It, it is insane what's been done to them. And after a while, I think some people, they cannot live in a world where this was all a waste. So they refuse to live in that world. So suddenly their tormentors become their heroes. These people are keeping me safe. They can't, and you can't even reach them. You say, look, here are the charts. They won't even look at them. I don't even want to see the charts. Why do you not want to see the charts? I thought you were the scientific ones. It's, uh, so I don't really, honestly, I don't know how to answer that. But I do think some of them, you know, the public sector is very quick to accuse the private sector of being uh, inhabited by greedy people who just are yearning for more wealth and power and influence. Why would the public sector be exempt from this? They're the same species as the rest of us. Couldn't you imagine, at least if you were a sinister person, that if you were in a situation where at least half the public was ready to do whatever you said, that every week you would have another press conference arbitrarily announcing that now we're reopening at 35% capacity. There's no scientific foundation for any of that. But... But you're the one who's saving lives by engaging in all this disruption of everybody's lives. You could imagine that there would be a rush to that. And I actually do think that that is behind some of it. And, and then thinking that, geez, if they go along with this, I wonder what else we could do someplace down the road. Because we have a lot of ways we want to change the lives of these stupid rubes because they're, they're too dumb to know what's good for them. Maybe we could take these powers and use them to train them to, you know, not use as much electricity next time or not do this or that. So I think I guess I'm leaning towards sinister. Yeah. I, I think I talked myself into it. I mean, it, 
it might have started as sort of this risk-averse uh, thing where you have to do something, otherwise yeah. you get blamed for not doing something. Right. And once they got a taste of that power, once they wore the ring for a little bit too long, they're like, I, I, I'm digging this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then we have to account for the red state governors, most of whom were not that much better than the blue state governors. Right. But what, you know, oh, gosh, thank goodness we have Ron DeSantis. Now, I know, look, I already know. I know Ron DeSantis is not good on everything. You know, he's not good on weed. He's not good on, uh, I could come up with a bunch of things. And he sometimes he says things that are kind of boomer and cringy. Okay, I get that. You know, he's like your uncle who's pretty good on some things. And then you say, oh, gosh, Uncle so-and-so, why are you saying this in front of the whole, the whole family? But he gave us that control group by saying in September we're fully reopening, no capacity limit. I mean, there have been concerts in Florida. There have been. I saw Rob Schneider do a comedy show. You know, like I mean, there have been. It's been normal life, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. The numbers kept going down. Nothing happened. And there, the, you know, there was that phony baloney story about how uh, we were cooking the books and fly. Yeah. Okay. First of all, if the if the hospitals were in fact packed with COVID patients, that would get out. You know, people would figure that out. So that was a ridiculous conspiracy to begin with, but. What I think happened was some of the other red state governors, I think Governor Abbott of Texas, realized, I can't believe the political hay DeSantis is making out of thumbing his nose at Fauci. What if I start thumbing my nose at Fauci? And he did it. And then Fauci, meanwhile, was asked, how can you explain how Texas has done just fine? They just lifted all their restrictions. They've done just fine. And, and there's a part of you that thinks, well, he is Dr. Fauci. I mean, he, is, he does have some knowledge. Maybe he's got a good answer to that. And his answer was, I really don't know. Maybe they're doing a lot of things outdoors in Texas. I'm not joking. That was his answer. Maybe they're doing a lot of, a lot of things outdoors. I don't know. That was his answer. So then it sort of became once the vaccines hit a certain critical mass, that became the fig leaf for the blue state governors. to Because at some point they realized we need the tax revenue. Well, we need business activity. We need people not to move away. So at some point, we do have to stop doing this. And I said that all along. I know there were libertarians who said, oh, they're never going to give this up. And I said, no, 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 that's implausible. They are going to give it up because they cannot do it forever. They're going to come up with some fig leaf. And for them, it was the vaccines. So Cuomo said, aha, we reached such and such number. Now you can go back to it. But the real thing was they looked at DeSantis and they realized everyone wasn't going to die instantly. So we had that. But, geez, these other, I mean, like in Ohio uh, and Maryland, they, they were almost as bad as any blue state governor. So it, it goes to show, you know, every once in a while, the Republican Party might pull at you this much. And then you remember, nah, it's mostly bums like that. You know, DeSantis is an outlier. And, 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 and most and the Republican Party establishment can't stand the side of him. You know, as somebody with some common sense, they can't stand the side of him. So, so Trump was kind of all over on this stuff, and I, you know, he, you know, the the public perception, particularly from lockdowners, was that that Trump was passive and and didn't take it seriously, but of course, he's the guy that platformed Fauci, yeah, and he's the guy that hectored uh, the governor of Georgia for, opening too, for soon. opening too soon. Yeah. So I. I I couldn't figure out where he was coming from, but I always figured that there was a a political opportunity that DeSantis discovered um, for people that realized after a while that not only are lockdowns not helping, but that the costs are like astronomical in terms yeah. of uh, eco- not just economics, but human costs. But it took a while for anyone to stick their neck out. 
Yeah, it really did. And 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 you're right about Trump because Fauci himself uh, several times corrected the record on on and on air and said, look. Uh, Pretty much everything we asked Trump for uh, initially, we got. He, he did everything we asked him to do. So, you know, then Fauci trying to change his line. Well, you know, if only back in February we had done so and so. But if you look at his public statements back in February, he wasn't calling for any of that. So he's a, I, I mean, that guy, you, you just, he's, you can't pin him down on anything, uh, Fauci. But yeah, Trump initially went in for this. He, he criticized Sweden also for not locking down. And so then it, it made it very difficult for him to step away because he would have to have he'd have to take this awkward position. It made sense to lock down in the beginning. But then even though nothing really changed, it made sense to not lock down. Yeah. So he was in this weird opus and he's never going to admit to a mistake. Donald Trump. No. So, so, you know, so then what? So that was rough. And, and Christy Nome initially before DeSantis was initially the one everybody pointed to. Look at Christy Nome. She's resisting this. But I think the reason DeSantis stole the spotlight for her is partly that Florida is a more populous state, so it seems like it's more relevant because most of us live in a state that's more like Florida than, than, than South Dakota, but also because he didn't just say, hey, we have freedom here and we're open for business. He took the narrative on. He knew the numbers. He knew the studies. He had a roundtable discussion with uh, you know the Great Barrington Declaration scientists and one other scientist, and at that thing, he had full command of the literature. He would say, oh, yeah, well, of course, the Iceland contact tracing study told us in the beginning that schools could be open. and well, like He just knew this stuff. He knew it with no notes. And so he was pushing back on their grounds. He wasn't just saying, well, our liberties are important. Our liberties are important. But there are also people who say, well, but we need to suspend our liberties for right now because it's, it's unsafe. He could also hit them on those grounds. And uh, to see somebody who just hit back like that nobody else was doing that and and to this day i don't know that very many other politicians are doing that apart from him so the so the mantra and i can't remember the guy's name but it's it's biden's advisor is now saying that lockdowns didn't work well enough because people were too selfish and they cheated and we didn't do it soon enough and i'm thinking about the the potential of governments locking down we, we're now learning after the fact that the virus was here in December yeah, and so maybe November. You can lock down all you want. So the, the only way to make sure that lockdowns work is to just lock down. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, oh, someone just sneezed. We better lock the whole thing down. Yeah. It's yeah. it's kind of creepy because it, it kind of gets at this, this precautionary principle thing where any risk is too much risk. And to, to really keep us safe, we need to just give over all of our freedom all the time and and let the machine work yeah yeah well i i feel weird uh speaking positively about a non-ron paul politician but i have to say when we look at the whole world i mean almost the whole world went for this yeah. i mean very very few exceptions. now there is an except there one of the exceptions is not just sweden but I have a friend, Gret Glyer. He runs. He he created the Donor C app. It's a brilliant philanthropic app where they, it's called Donor C because you p- contribute to some micro cause, like helping one child get his vision back, that sort of thing. And after you make your contribution, once the good deed is done, you can see the results because they'll send you pictures and videos of the child seeing or hearing for the first time, or. Uh, the people who listen to my show, we helped to build a house for a widow in Malawi. And after the house was built, they took us for a tour inside. They showed us the house. 
And then afterward, they stood there and read the names and thanked everybody who listens to my show for building that house. It's an amazing app. And, and this Gret Glyer, he's young, he's in his early 30s. He lived in Malawi, which I don't know if it still is, but at that time it was literally the poorest country on earth. And he lived there because he puts his money where his mouth is. Like he really, really wanted to be there and help poor people. So he uprooted himself and lived in Malawi for three years. And he told me a story that I didn't see reported anywhere, that there was originally going to be a lockdown in Malawi. Now, in Malawi, they live hand to mouth. And that literally means that they, every day, are earning enough money to eat to survive to the next day. So if they don't work and they lock down, that means they starve. That is what that means. There is no alternative to that. But every every political elite everywhere was saying, well, we, I guess we just have to do what everybody's doing. But the people of Malawi rose up and said, oh, no, you are not going to lock us down. They insisted that they would not be locked down, and so they weren't. You know, the poorest people on the face of the earth had the common sense to say, no, we're not going to do something that's going to make us starve to death. And, and you know, they don't have a very old population in Malawi. It's not filled with people who are especially vulnerable to the virus. Um, I don't know where I, how I got on Malawi, but I just love telling that Well, that it, gets story. That, it gets that... Oh, uh, oh, no, if I may just... Yeah, sure. now I remembered. It's that... It's that practically everywhere that was the bridge i was that was the, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> other than malawi and a few other places went went for this so to have a guy to have a desantis who not only didn't i mean yeah he locked down at the beginning he shouldn't have done that but to have him actually push back on the whole narrative and say this is stupid and it's anti-human and it's going to kill people and it's not even doing any good anyway and all you got to do is just keep the the vulnerable people protected and all that to have somebody who pushes back against the narrative when you know Spain and Portugal and Greece and Italy and and England and everywhere is doing this to have that one guy saying you're all stupid and inhuman and there's really only one guy doing it i mean the Swedes were not locking down but they you know the Swedes are a very um, you know they have a very even count uh, um, uh, sort of disposition they're not given to being punchy the only punchy guy on this was DeSantis that's why I say yeah he's bad on this and he's bad on that but he was the man for this particular moment on this particular issue now if he runs for president he's going to be terrible on things that I love and I'm going to denounce him and everything else but thank you for not ruining my kids lives and for standing up and being the one guy who said we did not need to do this. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah. Shout out to Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Um, because this was such an important thing. Yeah. Like, um, you, you can suck on 10 things, but if you're good on the important thing, yeah. it, it really know, makes a emails, difference. I got an email the other day from a guy, and this has happened to me a lot. A guy saying, yeah, I live in the UK and I'm a socialist and I do not understand at all why the socialists have gone for this. They, they above all, should see how this hurts the working class. And and I wrote to him and I said, I love you. You know, yeah. like, I feel like you're one of my people. You know, and I said, I don't even care about the minimum wage or something. Like, we'll get to that eventually. But I have way more in common with you because you get what it means to be human than I do with some policy wonk who's great on the minimum wage but who kept his mouth shut during this time. Uh, this is one of the things that mystifies me the most about about the progressive reaction to this because they all sort of fell in line with 
with the, the corporate media and the pharmaceutical companies and the authoritarians that that wanted us not to gather and be human and and sort of appreciate our, our differences in a way that that communities are robust and you're like we're having this debate uh, there's a metaphor in here somewhere about the debate we're having within the libertarian movement between sort of the hardcore guys and the individualists on the one hand, sort of the Ayn Rand, rage against the machine, am I being detained kind of crowd versus the Hayek communitarian, the beautiful things we can do together and and that crowd. And I, I wonder where you fall in that that spectrum because I always thought that was sort of a false choice because communities are built up of individuals making individual choices and and individuals have that that sort of sense of community that Adam Smith talked about in the theory of moral sentiments. I don't I don't feel like we have to choose a team here. No, we shouldn't because like for example, this this thing that we build spontaneously every year, this is a real community. Like this is something that we cherish this even though a lot of us think of ourselves as individualists. That doesn't stop us. We don't say, I'm going to have my own pork fest by myself in Antarctica. Well, there is, there is actually a guy doing that. <laughs> yeah, there would be, wouldn't there? But, but see, like, we all get that the, 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 as, long as, as long as it's voluntary, you know, you can have any kind of community you want. And we do want We want to do things like this. We want to have big events together. That was one of the things that really kind of uh, was most devastating to me about last year was the lack of... Of all, of all this this kind of thing, so yeah, I, I think that is a false dichotomy because almost no, that's that's basically the caricature of us in the mainstream media that we only care about ourselves and 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 we're radical individualists and this and that. But look, every one of us has a family. Uh, a lot of us have kids, and I don't say to my kids, "Hey, you know, it's every man for himself, kid. You know, you cook your own filet mignon or whatever." <laughs> no one would act that way. And so this is a caricature because I find. That in general, people who are really, really opposed to us almost never know anything about us. They've never read anything about us. They they always mention Ayn Rand. They haven't even read Ayn Rand, but that's the one name they know. Maybe they know Milton Friedman. Then then I almost give I give them two points if they know Milton Friedman. But they really don't know anything, and so they they honestly think that that's our view that there that there isn't such a thing as like they'll think that it's a real comeback against us to say, hey, you don't forget, we live in a society. Oh, Matt, did you know we live in a society? You know, what? I mean, like, of course we know we live in a society. That's why we're against the state, because the state disrupts the normal, healthy interactions of human beings that comprise society. Because the state pits, by its nature, pits society against itself. So this COVID thing, now we're pitted against each other because some people wear masks and some don't. And now we're yelling, at, well, you don't listen to science. This wouldn't have happened. If, if that hadn't been politicized or then they'll say, well, this group gets a special subsidy and this industry gets this. So now we're pitted against each other because of that. And even when it gives money to foreign countries, there are there are countries that have been destabilized because one group is fighting with the other group about who gets the grant money. So it's because we like society and we like peace and normal human interaction that we're against the state. It's not that we're against society. Of course, these schmucks want to confuse society and the state. Because the state wants to take credit for all the good things we have in society. But I refuse to give them that credit. The, the state is a parasite that shows up later. Society is all the good things that we do spontaneously. And then the state takes credit for it. And then we're told if we're against the state, we're against society. I mean, it's like, if only these people could, if we could somehow give them 20 more IQ points, we wouldn't have to have this argument with them. <laughs> so I, as, as a libertarian, I'm, I was socially distant before it was cool <laughs> and even i like by the time april came around 
I I drove from Washington D.C. to Iowa to to legally drink a beer in a pub, and it's about a thousand mile drive. But even me as a as a true libertarian, capital T, capital yeah. L, yeah. I needed to hang out with people. Yeah. And I actually missed uh, this event last year because I had an opportunity to go to a live concert in Alaska, and I was like, "I'm going. I'm going. Yeah. It has to happen." Darn right. The White Buffalo, one of my favorite bands, and it was like it was a cathartic event because for a couple hours, I didn't feel like someone was going to tell me that I was killing their grandmother. Yeah. We just had fun, crazy yeah. as that seemed. Yeah. And and that's what I get here, like this this sense of community at Porkfest. It's it's really uh, this is one of the experiments in libertarianism that I think is incredibly fruitful, and I'll 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 ask you this debate that that we're having. Um, I am a big L libertarian. I, I think you are now too, right? Yeah. You joined a couple years ago, yeah. um, but here in New Hampshire, libertarians are in the process of repopulating the the state house with Republican libertarians. Do you do you have a preference? Is there a superior strategy there? Well, let's see. I know Eric Brakey sitting here. <laughs> he had a debate with Dave Smith on this exact question. The thing is, I can I can see the merits of both sides, and 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 with a lot of debates, that's the case. I mean, there are some debates where all the truth is on one side and none of the truth is on the other. But sometimes there are things where you feel genuinely torn, because there are some people who have successfully used the Republican Party for good purposes. And you can even use the Democratic Party. I think it's just more of a challenge. But the Republican Party has name recognition. It has donor roles. Uh, it has an infrastructure. It has a get-out-the-vote operation. It has a lot of sophistication that the LP does not have. And so if you can somehow get hold of that and put, and put it to good use, I could see that working uh, sometime. Uh, the trouble is that a lot of times good people who try to do that get shut out at every opportunity. Uh, they, they get abused, they get primaried, they get attacked, they get smeared, uh, they get their reputations destroyed. And so sometimes you just say to yourself, I want to be in the underdog group where at least I know I can say what I want to say and, you know, and, just, and express the ideas that I believe in and let the chips fall where they may. Um, but, but I'm not on, on a, this is a question of strategy. Uh, st- strategic questions rarely have dogmatic answers. There are some things that have dogmatic answers. Like we have to be against the initiation of aggression. That, that's just, that's, that, that is dogmatic. But what channel, what avenue, whether we should even use politics at all is also a, de- a legitimate debate among people of goodwill. So this is one of these areas where I don't say whatever your answer is is what's going to determine if you're a good libertarian or not. I mean, I incline in the LP direction, but look, I think Thomas Massey's a great guy in Kentucky, and he's been one of the best people on this whole thing. Or Rand Paul. Now, I was a critic of Rand Paul early on. I thought he wasn't good enough. But now, like, we wouldn't know anything about this gain-of-function research in Wuhan if it weren't for Rand Paul. You think Mitt Romney is going to go up to Dr. Fauci with anything but obsequiousness? Right? You, you, you think John McCain would have had anything to say to Fauci that would have challenged him? So, you know, I have to I want to be somebody who gives credit where it's due. Like, I'm the kind of guy who says that, um, you know, Ralph Nader is good on some things. I I don't want to be part of this this recent trend where this guy wrote an article 25 years ago that I don't like. So he should be banned forever. That's like the three year old's guide to libertarianism. And I'm not going to be part of that. 
Thank you. So, and and this, we'll, we'll we'll wrap up on this because I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about about your uh, the Tom Woods Empire. Like it's it's really a sight to behold here. <laughs> but um, having done politics in the past, um, uh, we at Free the People are are now very much upstream of politics in popular culture, trying to trying to tell stories about liberty to this generation of young people that are still trying to figure out who they are and where they belong. And, and I, I feel like that's, that's your business and, and politics, whether libertarian or Republican or Democrat or independent, it is a soapbox. And, and Ron Paul taught us that you can use that soapbox to, to turn on a generation of people. But I, I think the real fight is upstream. And, and I feel like that's where you are to tell us a little bit about, um, your, you know, first of all, the podcast, you're, you're approaching 2000. Yeah. That's insane. How old are you? Yeah, I know. I, it, yeah, exactly. Well, it's because I produce so darn many of them. And now, and people have said, have you ever considered just going to X number a week? And I, just in principle, no. I, I've, I've started five times a week, and that is just the way it's going to be. I don't care. So, yeah, we've got 2,000. But every once in a while, I come across somebody like Scott Horton, who makes me look like a lazy bum. I, I don't know how many gazillion interviews Scott Horton has done. But, yeah, there's no taking away that uh, from the fact that 2,000 is a lot. Um, and I, I know that maybe you were being facetious, but I will say that I'm 48, in case you're wondering. Uh, I, I don't know where the so time is So you started the podcast when you were 12. Yeah, right? when I was 12. And yeah. so now I've actually done the calculation. Like, how long would it take, at this rate, how old would I be when we got to the 10,000th episode, I think I'd be about 80. So maybe I'll still try that, you know, like I'll, I'll have, cause you know, <laughs> cause Ron Paul doesn't walk with a cane. He, he walks right out on the stage. That'd be my goal. Stay active and robust and give that a shot. But, uh, but yeah, so I've been doing it since September of 2013. And I just decided that I wanted to try to do a five day a week podcast. And now here we are. And you have an event coming up in Orlando. Yes, plug, I plug hope that. people will come to that. Uh, October 16th um, in Orlando at the Rosen Shingle Creek, which is this beautiful four-diamond luxury resort. Uh, we're having the 2,000th episode of the show, and we're going to have a lot of names that are familiar to you. I'm going to have a few surprise guests who won't be announced till that very night. And I'm having um, Michael Malice is coming. And he says he has a special surprise guest and that when this guest is revealed, he says people are going to need oxygen masks to recover when they see what my surprise is. I don't even know what the surprise is. And I mean, like, it's always like any time Michael Malice says he's going to show up and surprise you, you just don't know what yeah, be to con think. Be concerned. Yeah, exactly. Be concerned. Uh, but then another a, a really great and irreplaceable part of that 2000 um, episode event is... Um, I guess a lot of us are fans of Penn and Teller, uh, the magicians, because they're great magicians and they're great. They're both actually. They're both libertarians, not just Penn. Uh, they're both. They're great people, and uh, they have a TV show. I would say fewer than half the people who are would describe themselves as fans of Penn and Teller know about their TV show. The TV show is fantastic. It's called Fool Us, and the idea is magicians come on that show and try to do a trick that Penn and Teller can't figure out, and it's fascinating to watch them because they know so much. There are tricks where you think, oh, there's no way Penn and Teller know how this is done. And they know how it's done. But once in a while, somebody fools them. So there's this fellow named Doc Dixon. He's been on the show twice. He, and the first time he was on, he fooled them. Well, it turns out he's a listener of the Tom Woods show, and he gets my newsletter. And he found out I'm doing a 2000th episode event. 
And he said, how would you like me to saw you in half at your 2000th episode? <laughs> and I said, well, of course I want, why would I not want that? And he said, no, it's not the traditional routine where it's a box and then we cut it in half and there's two boxes and you're squished in one of the two boxes. Everybody knows how that's done. And he said, no, 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 no. I got a whole routine with a chainsaw and it's going to be great. And he says, now, let me just ask you, how surprised do you want to be in this routine? And I said, very surprised. So, like, this is going to be so awesome. And I'm not charging admission. You just show up. You get in for free. It's going to be a night of, of entertainment. But also the room is going to be filled with friends you haven't met yet. And, you know, people who were, we were all uh, demonized and called names and, you know, made to feel like we were crazy. And we're all just going to have a big celebration together down in Orlando. So I hope you'll consider that. I have a website for it. It's Tom Woods 2000 com and you can register there because it doesn't cost you anything but it would be nice if you registered so thank you for plugging that yes and uh, and thank you for doing this I was trying to remember I did your show I'm gonna say 2012 or something like that back or when maybe I was 2014 or so. yeah yeah but a long time a long ago, time ago yeah. and uh, and thanks for doing this and uh, thanks for being at Porkfest can I say one last thing sure about having you on the show when I had you on the show I was it was still pretty new as you say it was yeah. a long time ago and so I should get you back we'll get you back on but um, th I'm not saying this to flatter you because you're interviewing me but honestly your name carries a certain respectability in certain circles. Not in all circles, but uh, in, definitely not in all circles. But in some circles, you know, well, yeah, Matt Kibbe. I mean, we all know who he is, and he's, you know, he's 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 respectable. And so I thought, you know, every once in a while, I'm going to try and have a respectable person on the show and just throw people off guard, you know. And we had a great conversation, and so, it was fun. So, so not Gene. <laughs> so not Gene. <laughs> anyway, it's been great. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, this has been fun. Thank, Thank you. you. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. Mm -hmm.